I'm Julie Rose, and this is Top of Mind. I have been a radio journalist for two decades, but a few years ago, I found myself avoiding the news for long stretches because of how depressing and divisive it all seems. I still wanted to be informed and engaged on important issues though, and I figured I couldn't be alone in that. So we created this podcast. Each week, we tackle one tough topic in a way that will challenge you, help you feel more empathy, and empower you to become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, and a more effective advocate. Today, why do we lock up people who commit crimes? Jackson. An inmate at the California State Prison, Solano, Vacaville, California. You have a prepaid call. To accept this call, say or dial 5 now. Hey, good morning. Hey, Spoon. How are you? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. It's, you know, it's going to be loud. It's going to be loud here because I'm right in the day room. Spoon Jackson has been in prison for 46 years. I'm sitting in the uh, middle of an overcrowded day room at Solano State Prison with three TVs going and a bunch of people talking. And then they got others watching a movie in uh, Spanish. They got guys working out all around. Then they got six wall phones. And so you're sitting next to the wall. Yeah, in between uh, the two bathrooms. They got got two bathrooms with a total of about, what is it, uh, 10 toilets for close to 200 people. Wow. So there's there's like 200 guys in there right now with you in that it's room. It's close to it's probably 180 something. It's like a warehouse, you know, uh, just one story and got a podium up there about 50 feet away from me, right raised up where they got a couple of officers on it. And they got bunks on both sides. Actually, I sleep right next to the doors over there at uh, in, the co- in the corner over there where it's got an exit. And I get to see, look out the doors and look at nature a little bit. That's the, one of the cool things about it. Mm-hmm. thought this is an unnatural environment and it causes an unnatural psychological and, you know, adjustment problems from being in prison so long for even a day it could cause a trauma. When somebody commits a crime in this country, we lock them up. And we do it a lot. More than nearly any other country, in fact. Consider this. Americans account for just 4% of all the people who live on this planet. It's a pretty small percentage. But if you look at just the people behind bars around the world, 20% of them are here in American prisons. That's way out of proportion. And not cheap. It costs tens of billions of dollars every year to keep so many people behind bars. And then when they are released, two out of three end up re-arrested within a couple of years. So that's led to a growing consensus across the political spectrum that something needs to change. This season, Top of Mind is finding fairness. We all want a society that is peaceful and just. So today, how well do prisons accomplish those two things, keeping the peace and administering justice? Are there other options? Well, let's start with a view from inside. Uh, Well, I was... uh... I was a wild youngster, and I ended up committing murder, and I was 10 days into my 20th birthday. Spoon Jackson grew up in Barstow, California. It was a childhood plagued by abuse at school and at home. He started getting into trouble young, stealing, beating people up. Then, in the late 1970s, he killed somebody. I got charged. They gave special circumstances in order to qualify me to get the death penalty. But instead, the jury locked up and gave me uh, life without. The judge ended up giving me life without the possibility of parole. So you have, you have only ever lived in prison as an adult, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember your first day in prison? Oh, man, yeah, it was awful. It was future shock. I had been arrested before, but I had never done any time. And it was just... I had to wake up to a new reality, a foreign land, a foreign planet or something. And I just, I was in shock, but I kept it to myself. And I just watched and studied and see and saw which way for me would be the best way to go. Mm-hmm. Because I was on a journey of silence. 
and learning, and, and, and I didn't even want to talk, you know. What I had done to rip a hole into the to the society was, you know, I was never happy about. It. I'm ashamed and knew I had to travel a path to try to redeem myself, and I knew that redemption would have nothing to do with the state and with uh, anyone trying to punish me for what I had done. I had known, I know what I had done, and I know that the only thing I could do to make it right is to be of service and be the best me I could be. So what, what did that mean? How were you spending your time at that point? There's a, there's a staircase, right? When you come into San Quentin, there was a staircase where no officers or anybody used to come by, and I would sit up there and study and read all day. I would go down and lay in front of the chapel. They had a little courtyard. That's the only place where they had trees at. I would lay out there and read and just commune. And I had never done it like that before. And I felt like I was getting wiser. I felt some kind of uh, magic in the silence. And I was on the thinking about it. I didn't want to even speak anymore, you know? Because the silence was so beautiful and so real. And it was just freeing. To be honest, it was freeing. Yeah. And that was before I even found out that I was a poet. How did you discover poetry? Well, I was uh, I signed up for uh, remedial classes, and I think somebody told me about a poetry class. Poetry, I thought it was for nerds and women and kids and stuff like that. I had a whole messed up view of poetry. I had a bunch of messed up views about all kinds of things. I said, well, I'm just going to sign up for this dang thing. And so when I went there, everybody was, I'm looking at everybody. I had seen some of these guys on the yard and played basketball with them or something before. And I'm saying, man, this is cool. And I'm hearing poetry and I'm saying, this is what poetry is. And, you know, I got to reading poetry and I got to understanding some of it. And then about a year or so, we started uh, individual consultations. Judith had got permission to do individual consultations. Judith Tannenbaum was a Bay Area poet who had recently begun teaching courses at San Quentin Prison. And so after a year, she said, I will be her first consultation. And, you know, uh, we walked her down to the basement classroom and she asked me where I'm from. And I said, I'm from Barstow, the heart of the high desert. You know, and I was telling her, that's the only place I knew until they brought me here. You know, and I tell her about Cook Street. I stood on Cook Street. And the red and purple clay mountains that are surrounding me appeared to be the whole world. She wrote that stuff down, and it was poetry. And uh, it ended up being the poem, The Heart of the High Desert. It was all my word, but she structured it in a poetic form and... I thought that was cool, but I still didn't think of myself as a poet. When did you start to think of yourself as a poet? What was that moment? It was about a couple of months later. It was Christmas time coming around. I'm sitting there in the cell looking out. I was on the bay side where he could got a little water to see where the ferries would go by. And I said, I'm going to write me a Christmas poem. That would be my first poem. And I put the pen on paper and no beauty in cell bars came out just like it was. And I told myself, where in the hell did this come from? But at the same time, I knew it was something real. I knew it was real. Monday came around. They had poetry class on Monday. So I went down there and I just gave her the poem. No beauty in cell bars. And the next thing I know, when she came back to see me, she said, I mean, she tears in her eyes talking about, whoa, she's blown away. Everybody shared it with just was, you know, just thrown away. And from then on, poems became my life. I would write poems and put them in a black binder and share them with folks all over the place. That poem, No Beauty in Cell Bars, is Spoon's most famous. It's appeared in a number of anthologies and documentaries. No Beauty in Cell Bars. Restless, unable to sleep. The keys, bars, the guns being racked. Year after year, endless echoes of steel, kissing steel. Noise, constant yelling, nothing said. Vegetating faces, lost faces, dusted faces. A lifer, a dreamer, tomorrow's a dream, yesterday's a memory. Both the passing of a cloud. How I long for the silence of a raindrop falling gently to earth. The magnificence of a rose blooming into its many hues of color. The brilliance of a rainbow when it sweetly lights up the sky after pounding rainfall. Picnics in the rich green meadow. 
We saw the beauty in butterflies. We made them our symbol. Tiny grains of sand, one hourglass, a tear that may engender a waterfall. The memories, the dreams are now, love is now. There's no beauty in cell bars. Thank you, Spoon. What impact has that poem had? It's been all over the place. It's still traveling. And prisons, they uh, make you worse a lot of times. And they don't really, walls don't heal. Wall com- walls coming down heal you, not going up. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. That automated voice is constantly interrupting our conversation, reminding us we're being recorded every couple of minutes and cutting the call off completely after 15 minutes. I keep losing my train of thought, but Spoon is so used to this that he just picks right back up where he left off. it got to be restorative justice. So if the goal to restore your sisters and brothers to your community, that's the way to go. I don't know who want to be defined by one action the rest of their life, even if it's a horrible action. And there's all kinds, other sides, other aspects of uh, individuals that, you know, yeah. they put me to death. I would have never found out I was a poet, I guess. You know. Do you feel like life without the possibility of parole was a fair sentence for you? No, but, you know, I don't want, I'm not a victim. But, no, I was under 21. And science has shown that until the age of 25, you're not mature enough to understand your consequences of your actions. You're not aware. You're walking in ignorance and darkness that you don't understand, and you just, you know, we just, I know, for me, I was just dumb and stupid and had no awareness. Mm. Do you think anybody, any crime deserves imprisonment? Is there anyone who should be in... You have 60 seconds remaining. Dang, that's 60 seconds. Uh, I don't know about them first. They deserve to be a way where they could reevaluate and reconstruct their lives or something. Being in a place defined by violence, fear, and isolation does not tend to foster positive growth in a person, says Spoon. Another of his poems probes further the nature of punishment and redemption. It's called Fellowship. He wrote it for a fellow inmate named Sonny, who is also serving life without parole, or LWAP. Fellowship. My friend and fellow LWAP, Sonny, is dying of cancer. Bedridden, remorseful and sad. Holding on to a string of hope, a string of light, a string of mercy. I thought mercy was to be given to those who show promise, change, and direction, and not meted out on some esoteric agenda. How can the powers be not merciful after 20, 30, or 40 years? Even after Sonny threw himself on the mercy of the courts, governor, and gods. Yet Sonny dies like a wounded pigeon rolling about the ground. He dies like an upside-down turtle in the desert. Is it still justice or revenge? He's old and almost dead, no threat to anyone. The pain he caused others and himself eats at his heart like a power drill. When does justice become revenge in inmate economics? How can you serve mercy to some and not others? Aren't we all equally as wicked, equally as good? Mercy must be based on each individual. Mercy must be based on the now and not exclude whole groups of people. I forgot about old Sonny. He never got to hear this poem, but I'm going to read it to him one day. He'll be crying probably. Spoon Jackson's now a famous prison poet. He's won four Penn America Awards, been the subject of several documentaries, had his work featured in a Hollywood movie even, hosted a critically acclaimed podcast, and published several books, including a memoir co-written with his first poetry mentor, Judith Tannenbaum. He's also created what he calls a realness network of artists and poets, both in and out of prison, who collaborate on projects to promote the power of personal expression for connection and healing. Would any of this have happened if he hadn't gone to prison? 
I think if, if I hadn't uh, broke my social contract, I would have probably been dead or something because I was going down a crazy-ass road. Because mm. sometimes I wish I could swap lives with my victim. I used to think that all the time. I ain't a day go by usually that I don't think about what I did. But I hate the fact that somebody life or lost, and I was a cause of the life being lost. I don't like that at all. I need to be uh, needed to change. That's mm. what I feel like. Yeah. Because when they call themselves punishing you, a lot of times they make you worse. It got to be restorative justice. See, because to, to continue to punish just makes more hurt, makes more pain, makes more death. And they got to figure out how they're going to allow these people to become a part of society again. They got to be a they got to be a place of healing, this place where they could be mentally and spiritually ministered to. Spoon Jackson is serving a life sentence without parole for a murder he committed when he was 20 years old. His memoir is called By Heart, and he's editor of The Book of Judith, which is a new publication paying tribute to his late mentor, Judith Tannenbaum. Spoon is currently seeking to have his life sentence commuted because it was issued by an all-white jury and judge. There's a new provision in California's Racial Justice for All Act that allows the court to reevaluate convictions that may have been influenced by racial bias. I mentioned earlier that America's prisons hold a disproportionate percentage of the total inmate population worldwide. Well, when you look at how long people are sentenced to spend in prison, America is particularly punitive. Nearly half of all life sentences in the world and 80% of people serving life without the possibility of parole are in American prisons. Should punishment be the main goal of our justice system? I think that the part of justice is to create punishment for crimes. But the point of punishment should not be just punishment. That's barbaric. This man's view of justice changed dramatically when his son was murdered. We'll hear his journey next. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. So Tariq was a student at San Diego State University. He was in his sophomore year. He loved to travel and was a brilliant photographer. And he died just before his 21st birthday. This is Tariq's father, Azim Kamisa. Tariq was murdered in 1995. He worked for a family restaurant, Italian family restaurant, as a pizza delivery man on Fridays and Saturdays to earn extra money. He go to the apartment building and knocked on many doors, found out nobody had ordered the pizza. He came back to his car, climbed into the driver's side seat, and as he was about to leave the scene of the crime, he was accosted by four youth gang members. It was a gang initiation for one of the boys, a 14-year-old named Tony Hicks. The leader of the group handed Tony a gun and told him to shoot Tarek. And he fired one round, which came through the driver's side window. He, he slumped in his car and a couple of minutes later drowned in his own blood and died at the young age of 20. When I heard the news, I remember I was in my kitchen and that's when it hit. I lost uh, strength in both of my legs as I collapsed to the floor, hit my head against the refrigerator and curled up into a ball. And I don't have the words to tell you how excruciatingly painful that experience was for me. It was literally like a nuclear bomb that had gone off in my heart. And the pain was so unbearable that I left my body. And I believe in God, and I believe I went into the loving embrace of God. I don't remember how long I was gone for, but when the explosion subsided, God sent me back into my body with the wisdom that they are victims at both ends of the gun. Sometimes in deep trauma, there is a spark of clarity. Uh, I practice as a Sufi Muslim, and I believe that's what saved me, because I don't think us mortals are capable of that kind of a wisdom. Now, I didn't realize the significance till I called my best friend and he said to me, whoever these kids are that killed Tariq, I hope they fry in hell. 
And I said, I don't feel that way. And this was an hour and a half after I found out. And I know my buddy, he started to cry. He says, I said, where do you get the strength? If somebody killed my son, not only would I want the killer, I would want the whole clan. I never really went there. What did you want to have happen? What did you think should happen to Tony? Well, I think that uh, obviously in my heart, I felt compassion for the 14-year-old. Kids at that age shouldn't be playing with weapons and be involved with gangs and crimes and drugs and alcohol. It's easy to obviously feel compassion and empathy for your own child, but somehow I felt uh, we as a society had gone wrong, that the real culprit was not Tony that the real culprit was societal forces, that Tony was a victim of society. Well, that begs the question, who is American society? Well, it's you and me. We have created this society. So I felt as an American, I'm a first-generation naturalized American, that I must take my share of the responsibility for the bullet that took my son's life. Why? Because it was fired by an American child. Well, you could take the position, he killed my one and only son, he should be hung from the highest pole. How does that make a better society? Tony Hicks was apprehended a few days after the shooting. He was charged with murder and sentenced to life in prison, the first minor in California to be convicted under a new law that allowed stricter sentences for juveniles. Azim Kamisa had hoped for a shorter sentence. At 14, you are not an adult. It takes 16 to drive a car, 18 to vote, 21 to buy a drink. And I think science will tell you that our brains are not fully developed till you are 25 years old. I met with uh, the district attorney and told him I want him to have the most lenient sentence. And did you think that he needed, did he deserve to be punished and was going to prison the right punishment for him? You see, the, 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 yes, of course. I mean, I think that part of justice is to create punishment for crimes. But the point of punishment should not be just punishment. That's barbaric. The point of punishment is to be able to heal the offender and bring him back into society as a functioning, contributing member. In the months after his son's murder, Azim Kamisa channeled his grief into creating a foundation focused on reducing violence among youth. Violence is a learned behavior. No child is born violent. Tony wasn't born violent. It follows that nonviolence can also be a learned behavior. But you have to teach it because kids are not going to learn that through osmosis. The Tariq Kamisa Foundation focuses on kids in fourth through ninth grades and kicks off with a school assembly featuring Tony's grandfather, Pless Felix, who raised him. It is a powerful moment on stage, says Azim Kamisa. We're going to introduce this man's grandson, kill this man's son. And here they are in the spirit of brotherhood and compassion. Azim Kamisa reached out to Pless Felix soon after Tony murdered Tarek, and the two men have been working on violence prevention ever since. But Kamisa did not meet his son's killer until Tony was five years into his life sentence, and Kamisa went to see him in prison. The seminal moment in that meeting was when we locked eyeballs. I'm looking in his eyes trying to find a murderer in him. And he kept that glance almost to a a time that was uncomfortable. But I was able to climb through his eyes and touch his humanity that I got the spark in him was no different than the spark in me. He was 19. He was polite. He was remorseful. I wasn't expecting that. And at that point, I told him, you know I have forgiven you. I've been working with your grandfather for over four years. And I want you to know that when you come out of the prison, you can join your grandfather and me and work at the foundation. And would he have, do you think he would have made that progress if the punishment had not included imprisonment? Well, I think that he did not need to serve that longer sentence. 
I think that uh, there should have been an appropriate sentence. But once they start to show that they are different, I mean, Tony obviously is very different than what he was when he was 14 years old. Azim Kamisa would spend the next decades trying to get Tony released from prison. And he was ultimately successful. Tony's life sentence was commuted in 2019, 24 years after Tarek's death. I advocated for his parole, but uh, even the commissioner was in tears. He says, and I've been doing this work, Mr. Kanisa, for the last 25 years. I've never had a victim's father advocate for the perpetrator's parole. I said, no, he has a lot of work to do. He's different as a result of my forgiveness. And he will work with us and he will save many kids. He's now 42 years old. And he's volunteering for the foundation as I and I have and his grandfather has. What role, what role does prison have, if any, then in that system? I think the prison needs to be healing oasis. A healing oasis, you just said? A healing oasis. Oh. And you see examples of this in Germany and in some of the European countries where they are They deal with offenders in a way that promotes self-forgiveness, that promotes accountability, that promotes a shift in their behavior. Not easy to do even for you and me, but, but it is doable. Azim Kamisa is an author, activist, and speaker. He's founder of the Tariq Kamisa Foundation and author of the book From Murder to Forgiveness, A Father's Journey. Could a prison really ever be a healing oasis? Or even just focused more on rehabilitation than on punishment? It is hard to imagine in America, but Norway's prisons have been like that for decades. The only punishing element in the Norwegian laws is the loss of freedom. That's the punishment, and and it stops there. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Would you take us on a tour, a mental tour, of a high-security prison in Norway where people are held who have committed the most serious crimes, like murder, for example? It's Oslo prison. It's a high-security prison in the downtown Oslo, actually, which was built in 1862. Mm-hmm. So it's actually also our oldest prison. This is Tom Eberhardt. He worked for 26 years as a guard or a warden in prisons all across Norway. And he's a senior advisor on corrections for the Norwegian government. Now, from the outside, a high-security prison like Oslo looks just like an American might expect. So you'll see the big concrete wall going up the road, and you will see some some cameras on different places on that wall. And on top of that wall, you will see also barbed wire. But once you pass the gates and guards, you'll start to notice differences. You won't see any stuff with guns, because all the guards in the, the Norwegian prison system, we don't have weapons at all. Firearms, that is. Nobody has guns. The, none of the none Nobody of the guards guns. have guns. No, they don't. Uh, not in high security nor low security. We have batons, but they are locked up. Uh, the, the sergeant's office and all, only used in very very serious cases. And I think in all our prisons, they are not even used every year. What do the cells look like? I think the average size of a prison cell in Norway is about eight square meters. In the same cell in an American prison, you will have several more residents confined to that cell. In Norway, the main rule is that one man, one cell. We respect the residents' need for privacy. Typically, in our newer prison, you will have an ensuite bathroom connected to the cell. You will have a bed, a small desk, where there probably will be a television set and a bookshelf as well. That's more or less it. Mm. We don't have prison uniforms. They are allowed to wear their civilian clothing. However, if they work in workshops, we can supply them with working clothes so that they don't have to use their own clothes working for the prison. So when you were a prison uh, officer, what we would call a guard in in the Oslo prison, Mr. Eberhardt, what was the nature of your interaction with those who are being held there, these incarcerated individuals? As a prison guard, our probably main focus is on the release of the residents. It was quite what I would call normal. We would sit down during activities with the residents, playing chess game, or maybe just have a normal conversation about things they were interested in. 
For instance, a lot of these residents coming in are having kids. I have kids myself. And whatever they had issues with their kids, problems in school, the wife back home had uh, some troubles in the upbringing, they can approach me and we can, you know, sit down and have a conversation about upbringing, for instance. And I can, you know, share my advice. You're like a social worker or a counselor rather than like a police officer. Yes, absolutely. I think uh, the, the typical Norwegian correctional officer role is like a hybrid between being the, the police officer and the social worker. Hmm. I think that's that, that's fair to say. So it's very different training than, than um, American prison guards might receive, I would imagine. Yes. Actually, in Norway, it takes you two years of education to become a prison officer. And also you are able to take a bachelor's degree in, in corrections. And all of this is just to emphasize uh, the importance, as we see it, for good rehabilitation work. The most important person on the staff side in that work is the prison officer. Norway's prisons used to be very different, a lot more like American prisons, actually. We used to be very punitive going back to the, to the 80s. Staff had very little interaction with residents. We had a lot of violence, uh, a lot of episodes, a lot of escapes uh, in our prison service at that time. So our politicians saw the need for change. In the 1990s, the Norwegian government did away with life sentences and overhauled prisons to focus on helping inmates rehabilitate and prepare to re-enter society. At the time, 70% of people released from prisons in Norway re-offended within two or three years. That's roughly the same rate of re-offense America still has today. Meanwhile, Norway's recidivism rate has dropped to around 25%, one of the lowest in the world. As we say in our system, they go to court to be punished. That's where they get the punishment. Uh, the prison service uh, should carry out their sentences. But more important, uh, it is to prepare the resident for the day he or she is released from prison. Prison is not, the prison, the imprisonment is not to punish? The only punishing element in the Norwegian laws is the loss of freedom. That's the punishment. And, and it stops there. So as staff, we don't have, we're not allowed to issue them war punishment. The staff in our prisons should focus more on assisting the residents on their way back to society. Because that's creating safety and security for the general public. And it's all based on something we call dynamic security. When Eberhardt talks about playing chess with inmates or chatting about their families, that's what he means by dynamic security. It's a way for prison guards to know the individual inmates well enough to foresee conflicts by noticing changes in their daily behavior. They'll also know how to better respond when those conflicts do happen. Because we cannot determine risk without knowing them. Norway also designs its prisons much differently now. With landscaping and color schemes reminiscent of a college campus, the cells look more like dorm rooms. As much as possible, Norwegian prison life is meant to mimic normal life on the outside. There has been so much research around the effects of incarceration. So we know that people are being damaged by being in very strict and harsh surroundings for years, they will have a really, really hard time when they are released. They will not know how to be that good neighbor when they are moving into an American or Norwegian neighborhood. If we don't train them when they are on the inside, what we actually are doing is that when we are releasing them on the street without that training, we are transferring all that risk to the general public. One of the most famous examples of this is Bastoy Prison, where Eberhardt was the warden for six years. It doesn't look like a prison at all. It's uh, located to an island with like three kilometers from the island to the mainland. You have to take a ferry going out there. You won't see anything that reminds you of a prison. You will see a, a village with some houses. In total on the island, it is something like 90 buildings. You will have a church, you will have living houses. You will have a farm and all that. So what you really will see is this village. Where the actual inmates, the inmates are living in the village. They are living in the village. Typically in the houses, they will live like uh, from anything from four residents to eight residents. They will wake themselves in the morning and go to work or school. And when they get home, they will eat dinner. 
uh, and they will go to some kind of spare activities in the evening. And all these are also supervised by staff. Okay, so there's, again, there are, there are supervisors, there are guards, but what kinds of crimes can qualify? What kinds of sentences are allowed to qualify to transfer to Bastoy Island where they can live in a village setting? Oh, the, almost every sentence we have in our country. I think from at any given time, about 25 to 30% of all the residents are convicted murderers. The biggest group is probably there for violence and drugs, or both. Uh, some are white-collar criminals, some are drug addicts. Really, the whole range of residents are, are there. They serve sentences in other high-security prisons, and they apply to go to Bastogne for the last part of their sentence. That could typically be anything from six months to maybe up to five years. So only certain prisoners get to come to a low security prison like Bastogne Island. What do they have to do to qualify for that? They have to be motivated to be this good neighbor on the outside. And that's that's the goal for any low security prison in Norway. I mean, if there aren't bars and shackles why wouldn't they just escape? Yeah, you know, that's a very good question because they hardly ever do. I think the reason for that is that when they are come so far in their sentence that they are, you know, allowed to go to minimum security, they just want to see the end of it. They are getting prepared to release. So they don't want to risk being sent back to high security level, you know, by doing something, something stupid or escape. Is the general public supportive of this? The idea that prison is not actually a painful experience for people who've been punished? Yes, yes, it is. Yes, it is. We have spent the last especially 10 years inviting the media into our facilities to show them what we're doing, explaining the, the purpose of prison and why we are running the prisons like, like we are. That is not about you know being soft on crime. It's not about giving people that have done something really, really bad, some good stuff. Uh, if it's about being uh, nice to something, it's like being nice to the general public, I would say. The payoff for the Norwegian public is evident in the much lower rates of reoffense the country now has, says Eberhardt. On average, one out of four people released from a Norwegian prison gets rearrested after five years. Before the reforms, that rate was closer to three out of four. So the revolving door of recidivism that still spins quickly in American prisons has slowed dramatically in Norway. But the country's philosophy on prisons had a moment of reckoning in 2011, when domestic terrorist Anders Breivik killed eight people with a car bomb and gunned down 69 teenagers at a political summer camp. Was 21 years in a private prison cell with a bathroom, television, and access to college courses really enough for a mass murderer like Brevik? There was an intense national debate in Norway. And ultimately, Brevik was sentenced to the maximum 21 years, although Eberhardt notes there is a rarely used provision in Norwegian law that allows a sentence like Brevik's to be extended in five-year increments if the inmate is still considered dangerous. But yet again, he also had the same rights as uh, all the rest of the Norwegian residents. I think in theory, he would be in prison for the rest of his life. Uh, and he is in a super max unit and is really isolated from all other residents. So I think describing those kind of surroundings to the Norwegian general public, they feel safe mm. from people like him. Uh, they see that we have a system that are punitive enough for people that have done really, really awful, terrible crimes that, that he did. Do you think that we need prisons, though, that societies always need some place to send people who do really bad things? Yes, we do. We do. But I think we should not issue prison sentences to so many people as we are right now for a number of reasons. One, it's, I think it's not really reducing that much crime. It's kind of also create, creating more crime. Uh, it costs uh, a fortune to have people incarcerated. But it costs a lot to treat. Doesn't it cost a lot to treat prisoners as an, with as much comfort as Norway does? I have to imagine that, that you're spending quite a bit more per prisoner <laughs> in Norway than, than America yeah, is. Yeah, probably we are. But I think the out, outcome of that 
expenditure we get on the other side when people are released and are not reoffending to crime. That will save, you know, the general public, the society, the government for a lot of more dollars than just incarceration incarceration itself. I think we need prisons to incarcerate the people that are really, really dangerous. A big, big portion of, I think, both U.S. residents and Norwegian residents in prison probably would be better off maybe with other types of punishments. Since 2020, Tom Eberhardt has been working with a nonprofit called Amend, which is based at UC San Francisco and organizes trips for U.S. prison officials to visit Norway and also coaches them on implementing the Norwegian approach. This is not a copy-paste from Norway to the United States. You cannot be Norway, but you can be a better correctional model in the United States than you have currently. And I think that the United States, that officials, politicians see the need for change because the prisons in the U.S. are very violent. They are huge barriers between staff and the incarcerated population. But if you want to see a change in, I think, in the rates of violence, hostilities, injuries and all that in American prisons, there is no other way to accomplish that without staff and residents starting to interact more positive way. Tom Eberhardt suggested that we speak with somebody in Oregon for a glimpse at how the Norwegian approach might work here in the United States. My name is Jamie Miller. I'm currently the superintendent of Snake River Correctional Institution, part of the Oregon Department of Corrections, located in Ontario, Oregon. Snake River is Oregon's largest prison. We're considered a medium custody facility. We have the gamut, anything from... Um, excessive DUIs to capital murder cases. Our budgeted population is 3,059 adults in custody. In Oregon, we refer to inmates as adults in custody. Calling inmates adults in custody, or AICs, is probably one of the most visible changes in Oregon since state corrections officials began visiting Norway's prisons. Their first trip was in 2017. When they came back and they presented some of the concepts that they had learned over there, I'll be frank with you, a lot of it I was like, you got to be kidding me. It was like Norway, Norway, Norway. We're never going to be Norway. That's a socialist country. Their staffing ratios were off the chart compared to us. They have a lot of psychologists and a lot of the mental health professionals, way more than we do. And that's very expensive. But on the other hand, they incarcerate a lot less than we do too. So we changed it. We started calling it the Oregon Way. And basically what the Oregon Way is, it's about um, prioritizing employee health and well-being uh, by normalizing the correctional environment and in turn improving the outcomes for incarcerated people. So initially we spent a lot of time revamping and doing things around staff wellness. That framing around staff wellness was really important to win over prison employees who were soon going to be asked to start treating incarcerated individuals very differently than they were used to. And the initial changes were cosmetic, painting walls, adding artwork, planting trees. The more you make it a normal environment instead of that uh, hardcore environment, the less stress is on your person. The, the, the statistics or the data suggest when, in a, when a correctional officer dons their uniform at home, and they start getting ready for work, their blood pressure elevates a few points. They get into the car, start it up and, and start down the driveway, their blood pressure comes up a little bit more. As they pull into the parking lot, their blood pressure comes up a little bit even more than that. Uh, They walk across the parking lot, go to enter uh, the facility entrance at master control, the two slider doors shut, and and your blood pressure's up even more. They they can get themselves into a state of hypervigilance, and it's it's ultimately not healthy. I mean, the life expectancy, I believe, uh, of a correctional officer in the United States is typically between 58 and 59 years old. And the Norwegian correctional system is one of the top systems in the world. They have really low recidivism rates. Uh, The staff are happy, they're healthy, and they have normal range life expectancies like folks do that don't work in a stressful environment. But bringing down the stress level in a prison takes more than paint and plants. It's rooted in the personal interactions between guards and inmates, says Miller. I think the Norwegians really are invested in injecting humanity 
into the day-to-day operations of the facility, which is a big portion of their approach. The staff there interact with them. They'll be, you know, playing volleyball or playing cornhole. Where us, on the other hand, you typically don't interact with them that way. It's kind of an us against them type mentality. At least, you know, when I started 27 years ago, that's that's kind of how we were trained. You know, it's boundaries, boundaries, boundaries. The Norwegians have good boundaries, but they're professional boundaries, and it still enables them to accomplish what they need to accomplish in a very safe, secure, and and actually uh, a more proactive manner. Hmm. So how did you implement that, though? Was it just training your guards, or was it giving them new assignments to, you know, you need to spend X amount of your time on the floor having one-on-one conversations with inmate, you know, adults in custody? I'm I'm struggling to understand how, how you could just like flip a switch and all of a sudden guards who were used to us versus them are now like willing to see see each other as peers with the adults in custody. So it, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a lot more complicated and a lot more time consuming than that. I mean, if you look at the Norwegian model, when they started implementing these changes, it, it took a decade. Is there a specific encounter that you had or that you were privy to between a guard and an AIC who was routinely sort of having encounters with with guards that with officers that were not you know that were not productive and that escalated and then can you describe what happened when that changed sort of what that looked like yeah i think captain dave jantz he's uh, an amend ambassador and he actually is the one that leads our resource team here at snake river and as such he does a lot of the training whether it's with captains and lieutenants or the line staff it was the officer in charge and they had an issue with an AIC up in the housing unit. And they had called a response team up there. And so he walked up the corridor to kind of observe and see what was going on. And the AIC was basically refusing to go to special housing. Special housing is where they send an inmate or AIC who violates a prison rule. They are typically single-celled. And it kind of removes them and isolates them from the general population. Okay, so this individual, this AIC, had committed an offense and the team went down to remove him to special housing. And that's the moment where something different takes place. What would typically have taken place in that moment prior to the Oregon way? Yeah, well, typically you would would tell the AIC to turn around, put his hands behind his back, and you would apply wrist restraints and, and they escort him down Um, into special housing. And so he had an issue with the correctional officer that was working the housing unit and felt like he wasn't being heard. Um, I don't remember specifically what the issue was over, but instead of just taking him and forcefully moving him down to special housing, the captain takes the time to listen to the, the adult in custody. Tell me what's going on. Tell me why we're here. And he's like, Seriously? He says, yeah. And so he listens to the adult in custody's perspective and indicates that he's going to follow up with the correctional officer that's working the housing unit, closes that communication gap, says, yeah, you're right. If, if that's how it happened, that's that's not how I want things to go. And I'm going to do the follow up. And he basically, you know, submits to compliance and we go down without using force and having a productive conversation it naturally de-escalates. And it's just taking that extra time. Uh, The AIC is going to special housing either way, but this way we don't run the risk of of injuring staff or injuring the AIC. What has the outcome been? Uh, What what, have you been able to measure any changes in what's going on there at the prison in the last couple of years as you've been implementing this approach? Yeah, one of the things that that we've been able to do is actually reduce the planned uses of force in special housing. Miller says that before they started making all these changes, it was common for inmates in special housing to act out. They would cover their doors and windows with paper so officers couldn't see into the cell, wouldn't know what they were walking into when they went to collect an inmate for a disciplinary hearing. So officers would have to prepare for the worst, suit up in protective equipment, bring their batons and OC spray or pepper spray. And the result was predictably unpleasant. When I was a correctional officer, it it was very negative interactions, very confrontational or combative. You would have inmates yelling at you, yelling profanities. And basically, you go in with helmets and shields and wrist restraints, and, and you forcibly gain compliance. And so when you have those situations, it, it's what we call a planned use of force. 
I think in 2021, we, we actually had, I want to say two, but I believe it's more like five throughout the entire year, less than five planned uses of force. When I first started as a correctional officer, we were doing 13 a shift, 10 to 13 a shift at times. <laughs> a, sh- a shift, like there's a couple shifts a day. Wow. Three shifts a day, but days and swings, that's, that's what you did. When you would come to work, you'd walk down the corridor and you could smell OC spray. And you knew that that was going to be your day. Have you always believed that the purpose of prison is, that the loss of freedom is the punishment, that prison itself doesn't need to be a punishing experience? Or is this, is this a change of heart, an evolution for you? I, I, I really believe in, when I first started, I think you kind of all felt like it was more for them to be punished here. Um, yeah, my, over my career, my thoughts have, have changed significantly. Ultimately, when an adult in custody comes to prison, the deprivation of their rights or their freedom is their punishment. They're not sent to prison to be punished. And you have to remember that these folks are gonna be your neighbor. Um, you know, 97 to 99% of these guys are gonna get out. And I think the philosophy in Norway is you go to court to get sentenced to prison, you go to prison to become a better neighbor. And the more we can approach the situation that way, I think ultimately um, by making them available to release from prison, be more productive in society, and you create less victims. And that's that's the ultimate goal. I think it's transformed lives, uh, not just the staff, but the inmates um, and all for the better. Superintendent Miller, thank you very much for taking time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. Glad to be here. Thank you. Jamie Miller is superintendent of Snake River Correctional Institution, which is Oregon's largest prison. Midway through his presidency, Donald Trump signed the First Step Act. It was the first major criminal justice reform to pass through Congress in nearly a decade. The primary goals of the act are to emphasize rehabilitation in prisons and reform sentencing to lock up fewer people. But the First Step Act only applies to federal prisons, which account for just 10% of the nearly 2 million people currently behind bars in America. State prisons hold the majority of incarcerated individuals in this country. And every single state sets its own policies around sentencing and the purpose of prison. It's a complex patchwork. But that also means our voices matter a lot at the local level with our elected legislators and sheriffs and prosecutors. So what role do you want punishment and incarceration to play in your community's quest for peace and justice? Top of Mind is a BYU radio podcast. Today's episode was produced by James Hoops and Madeline McKenzie with help from me and Sam Payne. Our sound designers are Brandon Lewis, Christian Mockatel, and Mitchell Towsley. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.